Thank you. Welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the time for the meeting, I will read an extract from the preface to the big, of the Big Book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large number of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact, just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we start at page, we will start at page one, chapter one, page one, and Tim will work through the text paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. When the time comes for questions, this can be done by the raised hand function in Zoom. I will ask Tim directly and we will try to close around the hour mark. Um, at this point, I would also like to apologize. Uh, uh, last week, I think I, um, uh, I mentioned that Tim had uh, uh, told a story about um, a French Canadian psychiatrist, and I realized I'd been listening to a speaker tape rather than actually heard it from the previous week. So uh, I would like to apologize. And if you do have time to fit it in, Tim, that would be that would be great. And with that, I will now hand over to Tim. Thanks. And if you could just if you could make a couple of people co-hosts just in case it drops out so that we've got um, a way of handling it. Right. So my name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, now we're on, what are we on? We're on um, Bill's story. So I'm just getting the settings right. Hmm. Okay. Um, now Bill's story, the first half of it, and we have to go through it because we, we said we would go through it. But it's relatively thin in terms of material you can actually extract. Um, uh, he infers all sorts of points about alcoholism without really stating them overtly. But there are a few things which are worth covering. So I'll, I'll just pause on those when we get to them. Um, war fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned. And we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudices of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. Uh, I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a doggerel, a poem, on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold small beer. A good soldier is ne'er forgot whether he dieth by musket or by pot. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. Footnote. <laughs> Sponsors will sometimes think that pot means marijuana. And it doesn't mean marijuana, just to, just to get that one clear. Um, so ominous warning, which I fell to heed. Uh, I mean, not untypically of Bill. He sort of got the wrong end of the stick, poor thing. The point of that story is not that all oh, drink is very bad. It's that if you're going to drink, if you're going to drink liquids in whenever this is, whatever century it is, uh, you're best off drinking strong liquor rather than this sort of weak thing called cold small beer. So the, uh, the idea is that the Hampshire Grenadier uh, drank a contaminated, a contaminated liquid, and if he drank something stronger, he'd be all right. But obviously Bill thinks this is a warning against drinking um, uh, alcohol. But I think there is an interesting point in that, in, in the fact he got it wrong that made something of it. Um, Maureen, many years ago, said to me, if they want to hear the message, it, you can't say anything wrong. And if they don't, you can't say anything right. And I'm sure you've all had the experience of speaking at meetings and you say whatever you say. Uh, and people say, I loved it when you said 
X, Y, and Z. And you think, well, not only did I not say X, Y, and Z, it's the exact opposite of what I believe. I remember someone about ooh, 25, 26 years ago um, said that they really identify with my, my clear exposition of transactional analysis. I'd never heard of transactional analysis. I didn't even mention it. Uh, so, yes, yeah. So, but that's, I think that's, a, I think it's how the higher power works. But when, when you want to get well, all the tools are suddenly there for you to get well. Anyway, 22 and a veteran of foreign wars are so dramatic. Uh, I, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, but had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. It's probably a bit like my home group, where all you have to do is not die for three weeks and they give you a chip. Anyway, my, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I had managed with the utmost insurance. And I find this very uncomfortable. I don't know about anyone else. Uh, because uh, this is the, the, the beginning of why well, he's been doing it already. There's a lot of showing off in this. And he's supposedly telling his story, but really he's showing off a lot. And uh, um, uh, I identify with this, thinking you're being very cunning in the way that you're showing off, but having no, but I'm thinking you're fooling everyone as well. And so the way in which he's writing this story, I find incredibly uncomfortable because of how much it reflects my own vanity and uh, attention seeking. Anyway. I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for a surety company. The drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. I want to touch on that. Um, in the big book on a couple of occasions, it makes this distinction between the potential and the real alcoholic. And he does it here without really, I mean, both here and later on, he doesn't define the difference between a potential and a real alcoholic. But the definition of the real alcoholic, um, which, which and that is defined, the distinction between the two is the real alcoholic, the definition of that is going to be Essentially, when you uh, have a jolly good reason for stopping, you can't. And when you drink, you uh, lose all control of the amount you drink and you start. Now, from his own report here, he would fulfill the, his own diagnostic criteria for the real alcoholic, yet he calls himself a potential alcoholic. I, my, my belief is that he, what he means by potential alcoholic is someone who's got it, but is at the early stages rather than later stages. There's no evidence that there's a, sort of, there's a line that's being crossed. I mean, this line, at one of the finals, I was too drunk to think, all right, that's pretty serious. Um, anyway, though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would still her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. By the time I'd completed the course, I knew the law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders, my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge uh, the weapon that would one day turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Uh, living modestly, my wife and I saved $1,000. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I decided to go anyway. I developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on that line's always fascinated me what other reasons do people fail and just from my my own uh experience uh, uh taking the uh topic of sponsorship when it doesn't work and someone you know relapses and dies or whatever, whatever relapses and doesn't come back 
Uh, it's, it's very commonly said in AA, oh, he or she dot, 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 people give a single cause as though there is a single cause and as though they are in a position to identify the single cause. And uh, my experience, most things are, are, have multiple causes and the causes are very difficult to tease out. And I'd, so I like that point there that it, it tackles this assumption that one fully understands what's going on, when things work and when things don't work. We gave up our positions and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, a change of clothes and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission ought to be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I'd had some success at speculation, so we had a little money, but we once worked on the farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labour on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. Um, the reason I'm stopping there is, and I did this for a long time, I would do chairs in a, I'd speak at, someone asked me to speak at a meeting, there's a 10, 15 minute um, pitch. And I would um, try to demonstrate the success of AA by the fact that things were going well externally, uh, secretly thinking, I hope this reflects well on me, giving AA the credit, but really thinking, look how well I'm doing, want, wanting everyone to think how well I was doing. And the truth is, with lots of those successes of early years, it was fortune as much as anything. You asked me two years later and the tables had turned. So I think that all the way through this, I see all sorts of, sort of bigger truths reflected in his throwaway comments. So it's, it's like I said earlier about Bill seeing the, the important messages in the doggerel, which aren't there. Maybe I'm seeing things are not there, but I'm, I find this approach of saying, what does this story do? How does this reflect my actual experience? It turns it into a useful, um, uh, useful document. My judgment and ideas uh, were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late twenties was, was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places uptown Everyone spent in thousands and chatted in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. Uh, I had a host of fair weather friends. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my remonstrances, remonstrances, whatever, of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. That's his story. I'm given to understand if you would ask Lois, you might get a different take. Bob Bazance and his wife Linda do these wonderful sort of husband-wife AA Allen teams, sort of a tag team things at conferences sometimes and I, I don't know if it's his observation or hers it's amazing how you can spend half a century with someone and come out with a completely different narrative about what happened <laughs> and I think that's very very interesting the other thing that I think is interesting about this it's almost as though there's some denial on the part of Bill look we're what two and a half pages in to, I'm sorry to say, an eight-page drunker log. Two and a half pages in, uh, continuing all day and almost every night. Um, he's a lone wolf and the uh, marriage is a disaster. It's already very, very bad. But in his narrative, this is towards the beginning of the story, as though, well, it, it needs to get a lot worse first. I think that's very interesting. 
1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to carom, carom, carom around the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. For about 10 years in AA, I thought this was literally a type of coat that you people would buy, but apparently it's just a tan. Uh, the, the, and it, it's funny, uh, uh, with a lot of the big book, what, one thing that helps when you do read it out with sponsors is you realise how much of it people miss out where there's the boy whistling at the dark who says, you know, uh, don't miss it, everything's better now, but, but inwardly he would give anything to take a drink. And uh, he says, we smile at such a Sally. And of course their Sally means basically uh, a, 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 a sort of an attempted argument, an attempted line that he's trying to spin. But I've heard people say, I was that Sally. <laughs> which is just so wonderful like sally is you know a, someone who is foolish in that way anyway uh the local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism abruptly in october 1929 hell broke loose on the new york stock exchange after one of those days of inferno i wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office it was eight o'clock five hours after the market closed the ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. I think there's an, an interesting thing here. Um, it's unclear what point that paragraph illustrates. About anything, let alone alcoholism. Meetings in Akron, Ohio, which were presided over formally or informally by Dr. Bob, and the meetings in, in uh, New York, which took a very, very different tack and were essentially uh, lurid, consisting largely of lurid logs with an awful lot of biographical detail. So this is reflect this the way. Um, essentially lots and lots of drunker logs and not much else. Whereas in, in Akron, they were much more uh, readily... Just noticed a message from Claire. Yes, it's coming and going, uh, the uh, connection, but I'm afraid it's the best I've got. I've got two connections and it's the faster, it's the faster one. Uh, it, it's... Uh, fiber broadband, uh, but it, it does, it will come and go, but bear with it. Um, so we just have to put up with this, with Bill's writing sometimes. There's an awful lot of biographical detail which you can't really get anything out of. Uh, uh, the, the meetings in Akron, by contrast, are much more focused on getting a, a, a input from God and um, uh, Looking at the Bible, what does the Bible tell us? Next morning, I phoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again and my generous friend had to let me go. This time we stayed broke. I think with sponsees, the one point you can make Actually, there are two points you can make. 
although there are ups and downs, there is a general downward trajectory. So those, I think those are the two points. And that, that's really all I can get out of much of this passage. We went to live with my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as the result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage parties, uh, places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin followed by half a dozen bottles of beer would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's uh, hope. I think there's an important Al-Anon point there that the Al-Anon me will clutch at any sign of hope uh, beyond the point of reasonableness. Um, Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point in 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits, and I went on a prodigious bender, and that chance vanished. If this paragraph illustrates anything, there's a line in the doctor's opinion you can link it to, where... Silkworth talks about people being in a situation where they have a business deal which is to be settled in their favour, but they take a drink a day or so prior to the uh, closing of the deal and mess up the whole thing. So the and his Silkworth point, which this is an illustration of, is these per people weren't drinking to escape because things are on the up. There is nothing to escape from at this point. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I'd written lots of sweet promises, but my, my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Um, now, this is useful. Um, most people that come into AA these days are relatively young. They're in their 20s or 30s. I see relatively new, few newcomers, certainly in this area. I think it's a function of the area. Relatively few newcomers are in their 40s or 50s. Um, what this means is people generally haven't done the rounds of, as it puts it in the big book, hospitals and sanitariums. So you've got a difficulty. Uh, now, if someone has been through 14 treatment centers and come out and drunk every time you've got some real smoking guns as to someone's inability to stay stopped on their own but often um that the, it's the first big crash or the second big crash something fairly early in the career of drinking which gets them uh, into aa uh and the tack i used to take was uh when you tried to stop forever, did you succeed? Uh, now, for people who had genuinely tried to stop forever and really put their back into it and failed, they understand straight away that, yes, I tried that and it didn't work. Whereas a lot of people, I used to be stumped. How do you deal with someone? How do you get, to see, how do you get someone to see that they couldn't stop if they tried when they didn't try? How, what's the evidence for that? Because what you don't want is to sort of send them out and get them to try it on their own. Uh, because people, as we know, die. You, you, you can't advise that. Um, and it's this line, which I think is so useful. Um, I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. And so the question is, at any point, did you have the insight that to drink at all was problematical. Now, it's irrelevant whether it turned into a plan to stop and whether the plan to stop 
uh, was implemented. The fact that the insight was there, I think is enough to demonstrate it. And I remember at the age of 17, realizing I'm gonna have to be really careful when and how I drink, because when I do, it's explosive. So I've got to be careful. Now I then couldn't be careful. But the very fact I have that insight, then that's, you can test, test for alcoholism by either saying, did you stop, try to stop altogether and fail? Um, or did you, did you understand at some level that that was the way out, but didn't even try because it seemed so implausible? Because that was my position. I recognized I ought to stop altogether, but I likewise recognized at um, uh, 17 that it was just unfeasible, that, that there was no way I could stop altogether. So I just um, accepted that I would be an alcoholic and thought I'll just have to find a way of working around that and somehow keep my alcoholism over here and my life over there. Um, there were two later points, which uh, one which got me into AA when I really did try to stop on my own. And uh, a few weeks later, I ended up in AA. And then when I was trying to stop just by doing AA light and that failed and that propelled me into doing the program in full. Uh, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply did not know. It had, hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way and I'd taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, but such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. And this will be covered in a later chapter. At the top of 23, when it's going to talk about, uh, by the top of 23, you've already agreed that when you drink, it's a disaster. So the solution is to stop altogether. Let's look, are we the sort of person that can stop altogether? And it talks about the states of mind which precede the first drink. And so that is the crux of the problem. But it's a, it's a red herring because the states it then describes are, include drinking deliberately, drinking without a fight over it, drinking with an internal fight over it, uh, drinking with rationalizations, drinking without rationalizations. And it turns out there is no single state which precedes the first drink. There's, there's, there are states in which you see things as they are and do it anyway. There are states in which you see things as they are, but only in part. There are states where you see things um, distortedly and there are states where you, uh, uh, you look at the risks, but you weigh up the risks wrongly. Um, in the case of the man with the hammer and the jaywalk. Uh, but uh, I was at a meeting the other day and. It's a very common thing people say, I was in AA for a few years and I decided to drink again. Um, and someone once just described a decision as a commitment to action based on a sound analysis of the facts. If there is no sound analysis of the facts, it's not a decision, it's something else. It's yielding to an, uh, uh, an unstoppable impulse. And I think this paragraph is a very good illustration of that, the fact it finds that the, my alcoholism finds a way to get me to take a drink and it will use whatever means are necessary. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to be replaced by cocksuredness. I could laugh, ha ha ha, the gin knows. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. To telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I've managed better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street, lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, uh, for it was scarcely daylight. Um, my guess, if you're a real alcoholic, you've experienced that days, weeks, months, or years sober as well. 
that's a good test for people. Have you ever felt like that sober? Because that will explain why you drank. Um, and I've had many experiences like that sober. My brain raced uncontrollably and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. Um, add to that paranoia. Tom says, you know, paranoia is when you're worried about them. If you don't know who them are, you haven't got step one. <laughs> uh, an all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were stilled at last. So dramatic. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvellous mechanisms, for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Morning terror and madness. Hands up, who has morning terror and madness? And I think this is, but I, this is not a flippant point. I think unless sobriety is untenable, you'll probably stay sober on your own. Um, uh, with a lot of sponsees, step one is recognizing that drinking is, has become untenable and sobriety has become untenable as it stands. Again, I, I think we miss that sometimes. The AA round here is so darn good that it's pretty hard to go to a meeting and, and not have someone um, press into your damp little pause, a daily plan and all sorts of suggestions and good things to do, which immediately take the edge off. And the danger is you don't get a full realisation of how bad you are without a drink and without a program. And then there are motivation problems later on. But I'm not suggesting we withhold the program from people, but it is a side effect. It is a side effect of having very strong AA that people don't get a full measure of what it's like without it. Especially with young people who've never tried to stop before. A lot of young people, they've never tried before AA. Their first attempt to stop coincides with their first AA meeting. So there isn't a control group. What would happen without AA? Anyway. Um, again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leap. Uh, a doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. There are parts of AA where if you mention drugs, they won't sit with you at coffee afterwards and they won't invite you back to <laughs> next week. And then next week, the topic will be primary purpose and no one knows who made it it just is the topic the next week um and you get this this funny circumlocution where people said you know i was snorting some outside issues like the fact that you say outside issues rather than cocaine means that you're somehow now not talking about drugs it's like that rhetorical device you know in, in classical times and speeches i'm not going to mention the many adversities we've been through such as and then they list the very adversities they've been through um the part i think the party line on this is you get to mention drugs but don't make it a centerpiece so i think that's a wise advice i was given this combination soon landed me on the rocks people feared for my sanity so did i i could eat little or nothing when drinking and i was 40 pounds underweight my brother-in-law, Leonard Strong, I think, is a physician. And through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. 
hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained though that though certainly foolish and <coughs> selfish and foolish, I've been seriously ill bodily and mentally. How big is an American bottle of gin? How many to the bathtub? <laughs> I think the flippancy aside, the um, the, the, the idea of bathtub, it, it's, isn't it that the gin that you make in the bathtub during prohibition? I think that's where the phrase comes from. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, my observation with sponsees, and I should make this observation more often because it would make me a kind of person. When people don't do what you ask them to do, very often it's they, the will is there, but it's just weakened. There are so many opposing forces um, that they just can't follow the instructions. Um, and it takes a while before the, the power fully, fully becomes available. Um, the trick, if people aren't able to do fully what you're asking them to do, break it down, break it down, break it down until it becomes a manageable chunk. So a good example is with the step, the third column of the step four, <coughs> which is, let me just ask for a cup of tea. Couldn't you make a cup of tea, could you? That's right, so um, the third, third column, I realized I had the headset on when I said that. Um, the, th the third column is incredibly difficult because it's asking you for the first time in your life to reveal the motivations behind your whole system, your whole failed system. So uh, there are nefarious forces working below the surface to prevent people from doing it. Now, some people can do whole swathes of step four um, and force through the resistance. Others can't. And you literally have to break it down to, right, I just want you to write down one name and one thing that that person did that you didn't like in the second column. Or <clears throat> write down one thing you wish they'd done, concrete personal relations, what do you wish they'd done instead? <clears throat> um, and people can usually do something, even if they can't do the whole thing, they can do something. They can do an, a nightly review, pick one thing which went wrong today. Don't have to analyze it, just pick one and tell me what it was. So you, when the will is weakened, sober, you start with tiny things and build up. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, <coughs> I fade third forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. Things were going well. There's a phrase that keeps being used later on in the book, which this is linked to. In Jim's story, for a while, all went well. Um, and then in Fred's story, for a while, all was well. One or the other. Very similar phrases. And it's the same idea here. You can, and this is the tricky thing about alcoholism. Uh, my sponsor talks about this a lot. It says at certain times, we have no effective mental defense against the first drink. Now, <clears throat> that between commas, so he says falling between the commas. At certain times, we have no effective mental defense against the first drink. That means at certain times, we do have an effective mental defense against the first drink. And I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard it too. I'm sure I've said it myself. This is going wrong. That's going wrong. But I'm not having any trouble with drink. I feel absolutely fine around drink. I don't feel tempted. So we're good. We're cushy. Everything's fine. The problem is that just because today I don't feel like a drink does not mean tomorrow things won't change. <clears throat> it's an unstable without a spiritual awakening without a higher power or at least being on the path to that it's an unstable condition here he's very late stage 
and yet he's got three to four months when he's fine. Which is a long time. That's longer when I've had sponsors that leave AA. Um, they're usually drunk within 10 days. Three to four months is a long time. But he drank again. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. <clears throat> One point about self-knowledge, uh, and this is, this is often misunderstood and misquoted. Um, people talk about self-knowledge as though it's a bad thing sometimes in AA, that all you need is God and you, there's, no, there's no knowledge required. There's no self-knowledge required. There's a sort of uh, a, a rather, uh, well, I'm not going to characterize it. There's a strain of anti-intellectualism within AA. Let's not go any further than that, but it's there. Where <clears throat> if you use long words or speak in full sentences, the, the, the pitchforks are out. Uh, because you're confusing the newcomer and so on. And of course, there's room for everyone in AA and people need to hear the message in different ways. But when I was new, I needed answers and explanations. And tut tut, it will all become clear, was frankly not good enough. And thank God, I found people that were able to actually explain stuff. The point is that self-knowledge is necessary, but insufficient. It's not that it's not necessary. It's just like later on, Bill is very clear about logic being important in step two. It's not just you have to believe step two, dummy. There's that rather unpleasant phrase, uh, keep it simple, kiss, keep it simple, stupid. <clears throat> as though the fact ones that it's as though it's illegitimate to ask questions or even have them answered. Uh, and, it, and the last related point on this is in step 11 where it says God gave us brains to use, but the brain has to be, the mind has to be under the, must be harnessed to the higher power as its power source as opposed to the ego. And there are similar things as well. Bill holds this view all the way through 12 and 12, where he talks about um, intellect and humility. Intellect is fine as long as humility is placed first. So self-knowledge is necessary. And a lot of this, these chapters are about making some Important ideas, very, very clear. Um, Self-knowledge, but it was not. For the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining, uh, declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. Thanks. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. <clears throat> my weary and despairing wife was informed that would that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I'd, I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me, and I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities and my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There would be much happiness after all. What I would, what would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I'd met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. <clears throat> Mark Houston makes a lot of that line usefully, I think. People object, quite rightly, to step three, saying, why should I make God my master? And Mark Houston makes the point, you're already something's master. You're just switching from one master which doesn't work so well to another master which does. And that changes the game. You can only pick between the available options. If the two available options are to have alcohol as your master or God as your master, it becomes a no-brainer. If you think there is a third way when you can somehow muddle through just on your own intellect and willpower, um, that's what causes the dithering between those two. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity 
it's always when people read it out they always say insidious i don't know why insidious insanity that first drink and on armistice day 1934 i was off again everyone became resigned to the certainty that i'd have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end how dark it is before the dawn in reality oh, and that now that's interesting as well <coughs> It, later on in the book, they talk about a situation where the, the patient was very hopeless and they, they didn't think there was much hope for him. And what they said, we didn't understand spiritual principles like we do today. Uh, and then they don't explain it. But the sense is that the worse you feel, the better, because you're more likely to surrender them. Hence, uh, which is why it's darkest before the dawn. If it's not dark enough, the dawn is actually not going to come. It's a strange sort of logic there. Um, my sponsor talks about situations when he was new where uh, he bit the clubhouse in San Antonio. <coughs> and someone, everything was going wrong in this person's life. And the old times were saying, thank God, maybe they'll do what their sponsor tells them now. And a year later, they come in, they've got a new job, they've got a promotion, everything's going well. And the old timers are going, uh, saying, oh, no, I'm, that's going to cause problems because they're going to get cocky now. And, of course, they get cocky. And then, you know, as the ancient prophecies foretold, exactly what was predicted happened. Um, and uh, so uh, I think the important thing is to offer comfort to people when things are terrible. Say, so, well, this, this may be the, how bad you feel may be the sign that you're about to surrender, finally. Um, where am I? In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. Oh, God, we're going to have to define what that is. <coughs> I hope to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in the way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. The fourth dimension is not time. People try and present that as the fourth dimension, trying to cite something in physics, and that's not what is meant. <clears throat> uh, I think the notion, uh, this is gleaning from Bill's other writings and from Emmett Fox, it's a, a sort of plane of being where your identity, value, and purpose lie outside the material realm, such that uh, you're, you know, part of a, a universal consciousness, uh, even without sort of spiritual or gaudy beliefs or paranormal beliefs, you can construe yourself as uh, that your, you know, your identity is a construct. What are you? You are energy and matter, and that en energy cannot be destroyed. <clears throat> so it's that there is an idea that there is a, a, a reality beyond the construct of the world created by the human brain. I think that's one, that's one very common understanding of it. Um, the physical realm, I don't know if you've had a look at it recently, presents a number of dangers, uh, dangers to the body and to the finances and to the reputation and to uh, stability and consistency and, and ambitions and, and so on and relationships and, <clears throat> and the fourth dimension uh, of consciousness is a realm uh, where one is safe Viktor Frankl talks about this very eloquently uh, this idea that the, the one thing they can't take away from you is your decision about how to view the situation and to live there, to live in consciousness, rather than to live wrapped up in the material world. So that's just, and there are many ways of understanding the fourth dimension, but it's essentially getting, uh, A Course in Miracles talks about this, above the battlefield. <clears throat> Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. We would need it before daylight. My musing was interrupted 
by the telephone. Sometimes when people send their plan for the day, there's like a two hour slot where nothing seems to be happening. And I think, what's is that amusing? Is that what's going on in that slot? Um, uh, it takes a while when people get sober to actually produce constructed lists of things to do for the day. Um, uh, the cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days, which I think is the essence of the alcoholic insanity, believing that you can go back to an earlier stage. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to compete Jack. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers like that. <clears throat> um, it's important with newcomers to tell them, I think, in the first year, you're going to have to buckle up sunshine because it's going to be tough. But there will be oases. I'm afraid you're probably going to have to live for the way the oases I did. Um, the first few years I found tough in all sorts of ways. Incrementally, each year was better. But in the first year, the oases were the meetings. And some days, little else. It was the one place that I felt safe. And if you can stand getting to the next meeting, just all you have to do is get to the next meeting without drinking, without committing suicide. You can get to the next meeting and then you can breathe. And now this is terribly important because sometimes this is the only oasis. Someone cannot make conscious contact with God in any meaningful way, in any experiential way, not, not in a way that, I mean, uh, sometimes in meetings I heard it today, people saying, you know, I, I just felt God hug me. I've never felt that, I don't think. I, well, maybe I, I don't know. But maybe I, maybe I did maybe I'm just describing it differently but the point is the one thing which is guaranteed if you surrender you're going to feel okay some of the time in most meetings if not all meetings which means keeping your clothes keeping your your nose clean in meetings I think is the most important thing in the first year keeping good relations with people in one's home group because if you if you as as um my first sponsor said, um, I think I was experiencing some lower attraction to another AA member. And he said, and I quote, don't shit where you eat, princess. So to keep the AA experience free of money and romance so that it remains a safe place, because then, as I said, there might literally be no other oases for a while until the program really kicks in. <clears throat> the door opened and he stood there, fresh skinned and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different what had happened. Important point with 12 stepping. Uh, you've got to have some kind of connection yourself to successfully 12 step because your words won't convince them. It's your demeanor which convinces them that you're at least further ahead than they are. You don't have to be super well to be to 12 step by the way i don't think <clears throat> you just have to be not as sick as them so i you know people at when i was like one year sober two years sober i was i mean this is after the work can you just imagine what i was like before at one year sober two years sober three people were asking me to sponsor them i was not well but i was not as mad as they were and they could see them. um I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, what's all this about? I queried. Asked, Bill, asked. He looked straight at me. Simply but smilingly, he said, I've got religion. I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. <clears throat> now, I suspected, little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. 
Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. Read the book by William Schamberg, which was referenced last week, The History of Writing the Big Book. There's a very interesting passage about the extent to which this story is accurate. Nonetheless, um, Bill is trying to tell a story here. It's the story and what it signifies which matters, not the literal accuracy. But he did know ranting. Uh, this discussion between uh, Ebby Thatcher, is it Ebby Thatcher? It's Ebby Thatcher and Bill, I think is hugely helpful because it acts as a model for me as to what I should be like as a 12th step and as a sponsor. Uh, I should read this more often because, but he did no ranting. I've ranted even over the past week. I'm growing towards not ranting. But this is the ideal not to rant in a matter of fact way another great ideal for sponsorship be matter of fact just state the point don't force it um he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment they had told him it was a simple religious idea um and to flesh that out god's in charge you have to ask god what to do whatever comes, get on with it. When you get on with it, you'll find out whether it was God's will because you, the results will tell you. Simple religious idea and a practical program of action, the 12 steps, what's going to become the 12 steps. That was two months ago and the result was self-evident. It worked. And this is the whole basis. Clancy, who's one of my, one shouldn't really have heroes, but he is one of my heroes, says, um, uh, willingness is taking actions you don't believe in because the people who are suggesting them seem to be doing better than you. So it's the fact it's self-evident that something is working for these people. So I, when someone makes it like when Joe, my sponsor, makes the suggestion to me, I just do it. I don't. It always looks like hogwash, but I do it because he's doing better than me in various ways. He's certainly more spiritual than me, whatever that means. He had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Again, great point with step 12. Um, if they don't want it, don't, don't force it. <clears throat> and what I've learned to do, if I'm going to a meeting where there's hostility towards the 12 steps, towards God, towards the message, towards the big book, towards the kind of old-fashioned AA way of doing things, I stop going. I don't, I don't want to become a thorn in the flesh of a meeting where the ideas that work for me are unwelcome. I thought that my job was to carry the AA message into like dark corners of AA where people weren't interested and suddenly people go, oh my God, there's a solution. I didn't know there's a solution. Please sponsor me. And of course they don't. Uh, you just become another person in a long line of D-bags trying to tell them that they've got it wrong. And there's a story, I'm going to finish on this story, but it's almost at eight. A bloke goes into a bar and, and he looks at the man next to him and says, Sir, you, you know, you've got a banana in your ear. And I goes, what? He said, sir, sir, you've got a banana in your ear. And the bloke says, what? He said, banana, you've got a banana in your ear. And the man says, sorry, I can't understand anything you're saying. I've got a banana in my ear. They already have the information that you want to give them, but they, they don't want to do with it what you think they should do with it. The problem is not lack of information. So don't force it on people. Uh, so that line is great, if I cared to have it, and I'll try and memorise that as um, the... Oh, Evan sent a link. I can't wait to see what that is. So I'm going to stop there, Alistair. So I've got my essay written, and I've been working on... Sorry, was someone trying to ask a question there, or was that...? Okay. Um, yeah, so bottom of page nine, top of ten, we'll, we'll pick up next week. 
Um, and that's, uh, that's where we'll stop. Um, and um, I'd like to close the meeting with the serenity prayer, if you uh, care to un unmute and join me. Thanks. God. Um, God, grant God. me serenity. Trendy. Trendy. Accept the things I cannot change. Things I can change. And the wisdom to know the difference. And the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you, team. Thanks. See Thank you next week, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.